Welcome to Strong Songs, a podcast about music. I'm your host, Kirk Hamilton, and as always, I'm so glad that you've joined me to talk about the accelerandos and rollentandos that make up magical modern music. It's a listener question episode this time around, and we have a ton of really good questions to get through. I'm excited for that. But before we do it, a couple of quick acknowledgments and announcements. First of all, thank you so much to everybody who's backed the show already on Patreon. Seems like it's going really well. We've got more than 100 backers, which is really cool and means a lot to me. I definitely want to get more people backing the show, so if you haven't looked at the Patreon page yet, I hope that you'll go over there and check it out. It's at Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash strong songs, and you can rest assured there will be a link for that in the show notes of this episode. It's a very vulnerable thing to ask your listeners to support your show directly, even though I knew that was what I wanted to do. I don't want to sell this show. I don't want to sell ads. It seemed like the way to go. It's still kind of a, it, it was surprisingly a vulnerable feeling for me, so it was really meaningful that people have been stepping up and telling me they're going to back the show. Um, That's really cool. And yeah, I hope that uh, if you haven't backed it yet, you'll at least go over there and consider it. To that end, I am instituting my first Patreon goal. If we can get to 150 backers, 150 people backing the show, I will compose new theme music for Strong Songs, specifically written for Strong Songs, which the current music was not. So 150 backers and we get new music. See if you can get it done. I also really completely understand that not everybody can financially back a podcast, and that's totally fine. There are a lot of really cool non-financial ways that you can support the show. What people have been doing such a good job of over the last six months is just telling their friends about it. That's really the best thing you can do to support the show, to be honest. Like, just tell people about it and spread the word, you know, get people talking about the show. Share the show with people you know who like music. Um, That is a really helpful thing to do. Also, leave a review on the Apple Podcast app. Even just leave a rate. A lot of people have been doing that lately, and that's really cool. That helps the show, too. So there are a lot of things you can do to help, and I really appreciate everything that everyone has done to help spread strong songs to the four corners of the earth. Okay, let's get into it. We have a ton of questions in the mailbag to answer. As always, you can send more questions to strongsongspodcast at gmail.com, or if you're a backer on Patreon, you can just message it to me. Let's do it. Gary writes in with a good one to start out with. He writes, what is a chord? I know the basic idea that it's multiple sounds combining into one that sounds good, but why are certain collections of sounds so good that they get to be designated as a chord? Is there one canonical list of all chords, or can people invent new ones that fit their songs? Are chords defined by any consistent rules or just by what sounds good? Okay, so let's take that one at a time, starting with what is a chord? Okay, well, a chord is a collection of notes. I would say a chord needs to be at least three notes. Otherwise, if it's just two notes, it's just called an interval because it's just the space between those two notes. But once you have three notes, the notes are able to imply harmony. So it's three notes, usually that are spaced out somewhat, and they imply harmony. That's my kind of layman's definition. A group of notes that, when put together, imply some sort of harmony. So that requires another definition. What is harmony? So harmony is just what uh, the word that I use to describe how a certain collection of notes sounds. So like a harmony could be A minor, which sounds like this. Or it could be G dominant, which sounds like this. So harmony is usually what, it's like the word that's used to describe the sound of the notes as they relate to one another. That's what harmony means. So a chord implies harmony. When I said um, A minor, I played an A minor chord. When I said G dominant, I played a G7 or a G dominant chord. 
Okay, so the chords define the harmony of a song. So when you have a song that has six chords in it, those six chords together kind of define the the harmonic quality of the song, which is to say, just like what the chords sound like. Harmony is useful to think of because it's a really, really big concept, at least the way that I use it. I kind of think of music as entirely consisting of two elements, harmony and rhythm. Now, those two elements aren't totally distinct from one another, but it's kind of helpful to think of them as two halves of what makes music. Basically, the the harmony is what notes are you playing, and the rhythm is how are those notes occurring over time. So if you think of it as an X and a Y axis, the Y axis is the harmony that's sort of defining the bass notes and the treble notes and the high and the low and the different colors that are painted with the notes, where the X axis is uh, the rhythm because that's the time. That's how those vertical shapes are spaced out over time, usually over the set tempo of the song, assuming that the song is in is at a set tempo, or if it's not at a set tempo, it's just sort of how it unfolds as time moves forward, because music moves along time, unless you figured out how to listen to fourth dimensional music uh, with Doctor Who, and I don't know how to do that. So this podcast, for example, moves from left to right along the axis of time as we understand it. So basically, that's what a chord is. Chords can be a lot of different things. They're more flexible than scales, and they're kind of wonderful little building blocks that are then arranged over the passage of time in rhythm to form music. This next thing relates to the episode I did on Electric Light Orchestra's Mr. Blue Sky, which is a very fun episode in which I discussed their fire extinguisher quite a bit. Um, the kind of iconic sound on Mr. Blue Sky is of a stick clanging into a fire extinguisher, or at least that's how it's credited on the recording. It sounds like this. So I got out my own fire extinguisher on that episode, and when I hit my fire extinguisher, it sounded pretty sad. It sounded like this. Now, my friend Sam, who is, among other things, a fire safety expert for his job, he, like, knows everything about everything, he reached out to me and said, you know what? I actually have a fire extinguisher here that's from the 1970s, which is when Mr. Blue Sky was recorded, and I bet you anything that it's going to sound pretty different if um, if you take a stick and hit it with it. So that's what we did, and this is the sound that we got off of a 1970s fire extinguisher. It's a lot closer to the one on the recording. Now, a lot of people have pointed out to me that ELO actually brings a fire extinguisher up on stage. It's not quite the same as the one that Sam showed me, but it does go to show that the materials that they made fire extinguishers out of, and even the stuff that they fill the fire extinguishers with, was so different in the 70s than the way they make them now. I believe now there's sort of almost like a packed kind of sand in there, so there's no resonance and there's no room for that sound. Where in the 70s, I'm sure they don't work as well, but the fire extinguishers do make a beautiful sound. Our next question comes from Mac, who asks, I'm wondering if you could explain perfect pitch. Sure thing, Mac, I can explain what perfect pitch is. So basically, what do you hear when you hear this? If you're like most people, you think, I heard a tone, a note. If you're someone who's familiar with, you know, common musical instruments, you maybe thought, I heard a piano note. If you're someone who's sung a little bit, you maybe thought, I heard a piano note that was somewhere in the middle, but you can maybe sing the note and think, okay, it's kind of in the middle. It wasn't like super high and it wasn't super low, so it was kind of in the middle. But I'm guessing if you're like most people, that's about as much as you heard when you heard this note. Okay, now I want you to look at the art for strong songs that's on your podcast app, and um, I want you to answer just a couple questions just to yourself. You don't have to do it out loud. If there's people around you, they'll think you're weird. Just answer this in your head. First question, what are the two colors of the piano keys um, on the strong songs artwork? Second question, what are the two colors of the text that, that says strong songs on the strong songs artwork? 
So most of you probably answered those fairly quickly. If you're colorblind and you're listening to this, I'm sorry, this is like the easiest example I could come up with. There are other things I could do to illustrate the same point, but sorry, just roll with me. But most of you, I'm guessing, probably answered, the piano keys are black and white, the text on strong songs is black and some kind of blue, lavender, turquoise kind of color. So this is how this relates to perfect pitch. Most people do not have perfect pitch. I do not have perfect pitch. So this is something, this is an exercise I use for myself to kind of imagine what it would be like. Um, it's an unusual thing where basically you hear notes just a little bit differently. You sense tonalities differently than most people. And you're able to do what most of us can do when we just look at a color and identify that color. You're able to do that with notes. So when you hear this, you actually hear an A. It's not like necessarily an A, you know, you're able to just identify the location of that frequency on a kind of a, I would assume, visual matrix or just some kind of a like extra sensory matrix that lets you place it in a really clear and absolute way. I am not an expert on this and I don't have perfect pitch. I'm guessing that probably some people who listen to this do, so please correct me if I'm wrong on this. I'm kind of speaking broadly here, but that's my general understanding of it is it's just kind of, it's not like an effortful thing. It's just the same way that most people look at a color and just see a color, people with perfect pitch just sort of hear a note and they just hear it in a slightly different way. It can be a major advantage for musicians. It's not like necessarily a huge advantage because there is something called relative pitch that you can train into yourself, which lets you hear a lot more when you hear music, uh, despite not having that exact sort of sensory ability that people with perfect pitch have. Relative pitch basically means that your ear is well enough trained. You can hear an interval, like you'll hear a perfect fourth and you'll understand that it sounds like this. And the more of those you hear and the more chords you've heard, the more trained your ear becomes, the easier it becomes to just pick out notes relative to one another. So when you do hear, a, you know, one pitch, you can immediately kind of know, oh, okay, that was the flat six, so we're in C, so that's an A flat. And you can kind of very quickly just do the same work to arrive at the same conclusion. But if you had perfect pitch, you would just hear the note um, in a kind of di direct and different way. Our next question comes from listener Jeff, who is curious about the band Tool, which is actually a band that I've heard from quite a few people about and gotten a lot of requests about, so this should be cool. Jeff writes of Tool's song Lateralus. The song is known for its distinct time signatures and corresponding lyrical patterns. The time signatures of the chorus of the song change from 9-8 to 8-8 to 7-8. As Tool's drummer Danny Carey says, it was originally titled 9-8-7 for the time signatures. Then it turned out that 9-8-7 was the 16th number of the Fibonacci sequence, so that was cool. That was cool, I guess. Jeff writes, as a self-taught guitar bass player with no formal music training, I struggle to wrap my head around unconventional time signatures. Could you help spell out this 988878 sequence for me? Yes, Jeff, I can absolutely do that. So we've kind of done a lot of theory at the beginning of this episode. I don't want to get too into just like the difference between time signatures and what 9-8 means and 4-4 means. So I'm just going to move a little more quickly through that. Let's just listen to the sequence of lateralists in question. And then I'm going to break down how to count those measures in your head so you can kind of feel the groove while counting what, you know, on its face looks like a really complicated uh, sequence of, of time signatures. Okay, so that was the sequence right there. That was the 987. To be honest with you, the way that I would actually count this is not really to think of it as 987 because that's not quite 
I don't know. That's not quite how I would count it. Because when you think about it, it's just like we need to get to the total number of beats that are included in that sequence. And how you subdivide it up isn't actually that important. So it sounds like Tool thinks of it as 9, 8, and 7, which makes sense. You know, you want to glump things together. But if you add that up, you get 9 plus 8 equals 17. 17 plus 7 equals 24. So you just need to get to 24. There are 24 beats in the pattern before it repeats. And actually, the way that I would count this is not 9, 8, 7. I would count it three, 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 two, three, four. So that's how I would count this. So let me explain what that means. This tune, I, to me at least, is basically built around a foundation of three. So it's this ba da 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 da. So one, two, three, one, two, three. That's kind of the the foundation of the groove. So I'm still kind of, in some ways, thinking of it as nine, eight, seven. It's just that I'm going one step farther down, which is called subdividing. I'm subdividing it one step farther down. So instead of nine, I'm hearing three, 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 which is three sets of three, which adds up to nine. Instead of of, um, eight, I'm hearing three, three, two, which is two sets of three and one set of two. Six plus two equals eight. And then instead of seven, I'm hearing three, four, which is one group of three, one group of four, which is also which adds up to seven. So I'm kind of going one step farther down, which I think is where you want to be if you want to be counting this correctly. So now that I've kind of laid that out, let me just count each of those sections over the music, and then you can start practicing doing that on your own. So here's the first section. This is the nine. So remember, this is going to be three groups of three. This is what it sounds like. One, two, three. One, two. Three. One, two, three. Then the next section sounds like one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two. So here's that. One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two. And then you get the last section, which is definitely the trickiest one. That's one, two, three, one, two, three, four. So um, that's the seven. And that sounds like this. One, two, three, one, two, three, four, one. So that's how I would say you should count those three separate sections. The next step is to kind of get your head to where you can count it and sing it at the same time. You know, kind of one, two, three, 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 one, two, one, two, three, one, two, three, four, one, like that. And once you get that in your head, then you can count along with the recording. So let's listen to the whole thing together. We're gonna go through it two times and I'll count along with the second time and uh, try to just hear those, you know, the nine, eight, and seven, but really just those collections of threes and twos and that one four at the end. One, two, three, 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 one, two, one, two, three, one, two, three, four, one. And that's the gist, basically. I mean, find what works for you, find what's comfortable for you. I'm sure there are other ways that you could conceive of, you know, subdividing those bars, but that's kind of the key, is just to be able to sing it and count it at the same time and break it up into smaller, more digestible morsels. I think when they describe it as it's nine, eight, seven, that sounds really intense, but really it's just a bunch of bars of three with some two and four in there, and that's a lot less intense. Like nine, eight sounds like a more intense time signature than three bars of three, which is also kind of how you can feel this. So I would say go smaller, break things into more bite-sized chunks, and conceive of it that way. Good luck counting it. It's a cool song. Jamie writes, while listening to the Monin episode about Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers' Monin, you were talking about that Clifford Brown lick that got thrown in, and it got me thinking about 
the lick. With that being such a meme these days, at least among jazz musicians, it might be a fun thing to throw into one of your Q&A episodes as another example of a musical Wilhelm scream. Jamie, that is extremely true. Um, that Clifford Brown lick was fun to kind of trace through. I've gotten some interesting theories on where it was coming from. But this, the lick, which I haven't talked about on this show, but is definitely a thing, is pretty hilarious, at least for jazz musicians. So there's this YouTube video that I'm going to link in the show notes that sums up just a jillion examples of the lick. But basically, the lick is this. And if you listen, here's just an excerpt from the YouTube video. It's just a million famous jazz musicians, and they all play that lick at one point or another. The video that I watched is like a minute and 30 seconds long, but considering that each instance of the lick is a couple of seconds, it's so many examples. I think this was crowdsourced on Facebook or something. It's really, really funny. And it's a good example of a sort of an ism. I don't even know if I would call the lick a lick. It's not quite a lick. It's like a little jazzism. It's just something that works its way in as you're playing and you just need something to do in the middle of your phrase. And that works over a whole lot of different tonalities in a whole bunch of different styles. And because so many people have played it, it kind of just gets in your head. Um, there are a lot of little isms like that, little bebop isms that are not, they're kind of short of licks exactly, but they are, they just turn up and you're playing all the time. Um, a really famous one is this one. So yeah, it's a funny thing about playing jazz is there are these just kind of these little ticks that that work their way out. And then if you form a YouTube supercut of them, it's actually really funny. And you start to realize how people are so often echoing one another and playing the same ideas almost unconsciously. It's one of the coolest things about jazz, actually, in a certain way, um, is just the way that the music kind of effortlessly and organically grows through different players. But anyways, yes, um, Jamie, that is a that is a great example. And another musical Wilhelm scream, for sure. Now, back to that Clifford Brown lick. On the episode about Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers is Monin, I talked about a Lee Morgan trumpet lick. There was actually a quote of a Clifford Brown trumpet lick, and a lot of trumpet players quote this lick. Here's the line in question. So that little line that Clifford plays in the tune Jordu is something that trumpet players quote a lot now. But the question was sort of, at the time, was that also Clifford Brown quoting something? It just is kind of a very distinct melody and it comes out of nowhere. Seems like it's probably something. So several people wrote in with this theory, and that is that it is the American folk song Turkey in the Straw, which you probably all know and sounds like this. I would say that's the best theory that I've heard. You can kind of hear it if you listen to Clifford's line. And then the melody from Turkey in the Straw. They have this kind of similar octave jump. They have a sort of a similar shape. I could imagine that Clifford was quoting it. There's one possible complicating factor, and that's that the song was apparently popularized by minstrel blackface performances like 120 years before Clifford Brown played it. So if he had that association, it might be weird for a black musician to play that song. Then again, that was so much earlier and the song had become so ubiquitous that it's also possible to believe that he just didn't think of it that way or was just kind of quoting it off the top of his head. So still not totally sure what that quote is, but I think that uh, Turkey in the Straw is a pretty solid theory for that one. If you have any other theories on it, by all means, let me know. 
The next question comes from Enrique, who writes, what is the tune playing you in and out on each episode of Strong Songs? I assumed it was your own composition since you don't credit it, but I would love to know if it is part of something longer. On a related note, it would be interesting to learn about your music composition process or to talk through how you come up with a few bars of music like that. Um, That is a piece of mine. It's a song that's unfinished that I just sort of recorded the rhythm section parts and haven't written any lyrics to, which I have a few of those just banging around. Some of them are on my SoundCloud channel. And I, I don't really know what to do with it. Um, I think it's a pretty catchy song, but it's very, very different than the version that I'm currently using as the intro music. So it's kind of a weird thing where um, I have this recording that I don't know what to do with, and then I needed intro music for this show when I was first putting it together. So I use that. That's actually one of the reasons that I want to maybe write um, new music and why I made that a Patreon goal, is that I think writing you know unique music that was specifically written to be the theme song for Strong Songs would be kind of fun and could open the door to some kind of fun stuff. As for my own compositional process, um, I don't need to get into it now. It probably is something I'll talk about on this show, maybe on a bonus episode. If and when I get some new music recorded, it might be fun to use this show as an opportunity to kind of talk about the process of making it. So I guess stay tuned for that. It's not going to be like a focus of this show ever, but it might be the focus of an episode or a bonus episode at some point. The next question comes from Christian, who wants to know about a piece of music that is near and dear to my heart. Christian wants to know, why is Alan Silvestri's Avengers theme so dang inspiring and uplifting? Christian, I have some thoughts on that, but I really just want to say that I totally agree with you. The Avengers theme song is like one of my favorite pieces of movie music in quite a while. So some of it is to do with build. I think the, the earlier parts of this before the actual main Avengers heroic theme comes in are really crucial because the Avengers were all about the Avengers assembling and this question of whether these mighty heroes could get together and, and you know, fight together and also whether this movie would work and whether this whole Marvel um, experiment would work. And the first time we heard this piece of music was in the first Avengers and that was kind of when that was happening. So this theme became like emblematic of the whole undertaking in a way that I think has lent it quite a bit of power. There's also the fact they use that actually James Bond chord progression at the very beginning that uh, we talked about in our very first listener Q&A, but then the whole thing is really just building toward this motif. We hear that first part of the motif introduced by the French horns and trombones and then echoed... echoed a little more distantly by the trumpets, and then everyone crashes in and starts playing it together. And I think that that's like a musical interpretation of the Avengers assembling. It really feels like a superhero team coming together to fight evil. It's a really incredible piece of music, I think. And Alan Silvestri's work in general stands above all of the other work that other composers have done on MCU movies. There have been some great composers, there's been some good music, but his music, I mean, he wrote the music for the original Captain America, so he wrote that theme. He wrote the music for the original Avengers. He also did the the score for Infinity War um, and Endgame. And he is just, to me at least, a cut above as a composer. He uses textures that other people don't use. He comes up with melodies that other people don't come up with. He's a wonderful composer, and I think he was 
was a massive asset to Infinity War and Endgame in particular, because I think the music in those two movies was better than the music in almost any other MCU movie. Our next question comes from Rachel, who writes, in one of your episodes, you brought up the Star Spangled Banner, and it reminded me of a conversation I had years ago with my mom. Why does Happy Birthday always sound so awful when sung by a group at a party? Well, Rachel, I actually kind of have an answer for that. First of all, let's just listen. I was recently watching Queer Eye, the new season of Queer Eye on Netflix. Um, In one of the episodes, they sing Happy Birthday to someone, and it sounds like this. I feel like that sound of those people just yelling random notes of happy birthday will sound familiar to anyone. And if the Fab Five cannot sing happy birthday in key with one another, um, it stands to reason that maybe nobody can. I do think that's for a reason, and I do think that it's related to the nature of the song. Happy birthday is usually attributed to the Hill Sisters, though I know there's some debate over who composed it. The thing about happy birthday that makes it kind of difficult is the way that it starts on a note that isn't really indicative of the sort of tonal center of the song. Let me explain what that means. So if we're singing it in the key of C, we're actually going to start down on a G, and then the highest note that we'll actually go to will be a G, an octave up from that G. So I think that a mistake that people tend to make is they start the song in the middle of their register instead of in the lower end of their register, and as a result, they have to make that octave jump, and jumping an octave from your middle register is, is very difficult unless you're a trained singer. So the trick is that there's an octave range to the song, and most people who you know don't sing a lot only kind of have a comfortable octave-ish to work with to begin with. So basically, my advice here is if you're going to be singing Happy Birthday, you want to start by singing Ha. You want to hold that note and give everyone something to go off of. You're the pitch pipe, so you sing Ha down there low, hold it until people start singing, and then go. Be birthday to you. And if you start it nice and low there in your register, you'll be fine when it's time to sing Happy Birthday, Mrs. President. And, you know, everyone will mostly be comfortable. However, there is another complicating factor, and that's, us. I'm assuming that you, the you that I'm speaking to, is a man. In fact, Rachel wrote to ask this question. So if you're a woman and you're starting it, you want to start low in your register, but low in a woman's register could be in the midpoint of a man's register, which then would lead the men if they begin singing where they were singing it, maybe on a G or something like that, to have to sing um, a high G for them, which is much harder to do. So there's no clear answer on this. I would say start as low as possible. And um, the key of F is pretty good if you do have a piano nearby. But really, I mean, part of the charm of happy birthday is that it never really sounds great, but that's not the point. You're celebrating the person's birthday. Everybody is singing and and kind of experiencing that vulnerability together because it's very rare that we actually sing. So I think don't sweat it too much. But that is Hopefully, um, a good explanation for why it doesn't always sound as good as you would think. Our next question comes from Scott, who asks, I was listening to music with my dad a while back, and Van Morrison's Moondance came on. It made me wonder why the flute is so underutilized in pop music compared to brass, strings, and saxophones. We tried to think of some other bands that used flute, and we only came up with Jethro Tull and Rusted Root. That's a good question. Um, I think that part of the answer is really just kind of the boring answer of amplification. A flute is a beautiful instrument. I play the flute and love the flute, um, but it's not the easiest instrument to amplify. And at a lot of live shows, especially back when kind of rock and roll was first getting started, it actually was important that the instrument that you were playing was just loud. Like horn sections always had saxophones and trombones and trumpets because those were just loud instruments. So you didn't get a lot of flute and clarinet in the horn section of like, you know, the JBs or something. 
just because it just wasn't practical. So now, of course, amplification has come a long way. There are really cool head joint microphones for flute where you can just basically wirelessly play the flute on stage and be heard really, really well as long as the sound person knows what they're doing. Um, I just want to really answer this question by pointing out that there is one artist who who plays the flute who's super cool that I think you should all listen to, and that's the singer Lizzo. Uh, She has a new album out called Cuz I Love You, and she plays flute live. She like incorporates it into her dance routines and stuff. It's super cool. She kills. Her album is really good, and I recommend checking it out. So that is at least one current artist I can think of who is using the flute on stage. All right, this next question isn't so much a listener question. It's just something that I thought it would be fun to talk about, but I do bet that it's something that a lot of you would think was interesting. So you all know the more cowbell sketch from Saturday Night Live, right? It's this classic Christopher Walken, Will Ferrell sketch where Christopher Walken is a record producer. He's producing Blue Oyster Cult. And in the studio, Will Ferrell is playing this guy who's just playing the cowbell. And Christopher Walken wants more cowbell. And that's kind of the joke is he keeps just being like, I want more cowbell. Give me more cowbell. So recently, this has kind of come back up. There was a guy named Noah Smith who tweeted basically his theory that the joke was that there was no joke and that it was only funny because the skit was insisting it was funny, which I just do not agree with at all. I think that there are multiple things about this that are funny and they're all kind of rooted in the musicality of it. I think they're kind of musical jokes. So I thought it would be fun to kind of explain my read on why I think that skit is funny. You know, I can pull it back a little if you like. Not too much, though. I'm telling you, fellas, you're going to want that cowbell on the track. Okay, so part of what makes this funny is just that it's funny to watch Will Ferrell play cowbell, and that's partly because the cowbell itself is an inherently funny instrument. So the joke works on a couple of levels. Part of it is the way that the cowbell fits into a band and the cowbell's sort of history as an instrument in rock bands. So the cowbell is a funny-sounding instrument. It's really big, it's really goofy, it's really hard to get away from, and I can't think of almost any time when a record producer would ever say to someone that they want more of it in a mix. The thing about the cowbell is, because of the nature of the sound, it cuts through the band really, really well. Um, The tambourine is actually sort of similar, or the clave. Uh, Any instrument that just like revolves around a single hit sound um, tends to really carry, which is a kind of a leads to an interesting paradox in bands. A lot of times the person who is playing the cowbell is like the person who they didn't have anything to do and they just said, ah, here, take a cowbell and play it. Um, The same thing with the tambourine. A lot of times, you know, just someone on stage will have a tambourine because they didn't have anything to do on that song and they'll kind of be up there beating the tambourine. The thing is, both the cowbell and the tambourine, or in the case of a Latin music ensemble, the clave, very similar, those define the time more than any other instruments in the band because of the way they cut through. So there's always this kind of paradox in a band where sometimes the person who should be least playing the most cutty and audible instrument is the person who winds up playing it just because it's not as technically difficult to play cowbell as it is to, you know, use all four of your limbs and play a drum set. So then you get Will Ferrell in the sketch, who is funny to watch on his own because he's a funny looking guy, but he's also playing like the quintessential version of the dude who is given a cowbell and should not be trusted with a cowbell. He's just up there just wailing on it. And then the joke is that they keep having these kind of deep sort of producery conversations about, oh, can you give me more? Give me more. Well, I'm not sure if it's really working. Oh, love, we'll try it. Like, but it's the cowbell. It's the most sort of simple and aggressive instrument. And also he's playing it ridiculously. So that's one reason that's funny. It's also funny, however, if you're familiar with the recording and you go listen to it, because uh, well, here, listen to the beginning groove of Blue Oyster Cult's Don't Fear the Reaper. So it's in there. The cowbell is in there. It kind of almost sounds like a woodblock. It's not that super dokey Black Beauty sound that you're, you know, used to probably that dope, dope. <laughs> 
But it, it's probably a cowbell, and it's over there. There's also a guiro, if you remember the guiro from our first listener Q&A episode. Um, that's the Latin percussion instrument where you kind of scrape a piece of wood across the back of a hollowed out piece of like bigger piece of wood and um you know you, you do that and it kind of gets that sound so they've got that going in the background it's cool but it's really turned down in the mix it's almost inaudible and that's also funny like it's funny to imagine that somebody would want more of it so that's the joke um you know i i'm sure there are other interpretations of it too but i think it's a funny joke and it's a specifically funny joke in a musical way so i completely reject the thesis that it is not actually funny that there's no joke there and the only reason that people think that it's funny is that we've all convinced ourselves that it's funny. Uh, just totally don't agree with that. I think that it's a very specific and very funny joke about the cowbell and about recording. Our next question comes from Alyssa, who writes in to ask about a TV show that some of you may be watching. Alyssa writes, So Game of Thrones has a lot of good songs, but what makes The Night King by Ramin Djawadi so chilling? That song gives me the shivers. Well, I like The Night King actually quite a bit. This is a piece of music that turned up recently when The Night King had a major moment on Game of Thrones, and it is composed by um, Ramin Djawadi, who is the composer of all of the music of Game of Thrones, and is an exceptional and I think very interesting composer. So here's a clip of The Night King, and I think it's kind of, it's actually a really long piece of music. There are a couple of different sections, but uh, this is like the climactic section or one of them toward the end. It's really beautiful. Check it out. So I think that Jawadi is actually one of the most interesting composers working in films and TV shows. He does all kinds of shows. Um, He does actually Westworld for HBO, which this song actually kind of channels his work on that show a little bit more than it does his work on Game of Thrones. He's a great composer and an interesting one because he's so melody focused and so motif focused. He writes these motifs and then just develops them and relentlessly repeats them and builds like whole pieces of music out of these component parts that are very clear and easy to hear. He's not a texturalist, he's a melodist. So in this case, this part of the piece is built out of this like bum 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 ba da ba da, which is largely built out of a minor third, um, and he repeats it just over and over and over again through a variety of chord progressions, and you get it in your head because you just hear the same melody over and over and over again. So that theme too, ba-na-na-na, also a minor third, and that, you know, that happens much earlier in the piece. There's a whole piano section of this piece that's really lovely. So you can hear them again, they're still repeating it. And then the way that he layers his lines and has them play these kind of stacked, repeating lines... Bum, 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 bum. 
it's a distinct sound. It's really cool. It's kind of in the tradition of, of 20th century composers like Steve Reich and Philip Glass. This kind of more vertical arpeggiated thing that almost sounds like something that an arpeggiator and a synthesizer would play. Um, he's a really cool composer anyways. And um, for a non-Game of Thrones example of this kind of writing that he does, um, one of my favorite pieces by Jawadi is the theme from the movie Pacific Rim, which he wrote and had Tom Morello from Rage Against the Machine uh, play the guitar part for, which is perfect because this is such a riff heavy song and a riff really is just a like a melody motif like the ones that Jawadi writes anyways and this is such a riffy song and the main riff just stomps so hard that I love it it perfectly captures the sound of a giant robot sort of stomping through the ocean and is just a really killer theme So that repetition is such a key to that kind of like riff heavy, motif heavy writing. He just hits you over the head with these themes over and over and over again. So you just hear it again and again. And it gets in your head and it kind of like, it ties you to the music in a certain way. And really, I mean, there's no better example of that than the main theme for Game of Thrones. That, that just repeats over and over and over and over. The entire piece is just built out of that motif. Bum, 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 bum. Then they just spread it out. Bum, 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 for the melody. It's just like uh, honeycombed and sort of nestled within itself. And that's the reason it gets so stuck in your head is because it repeats the same melody over and over and over again in a variety of different ways. Speaking of getting a song stuck in your head, listener Morty writes in about the song Sight of You by Sigrid. Actually, Morty writing this email made me go listen to the new, al- uh, the new album from Sigrid, which is called Sucker Punch, and is really great, really just super fun album that I recommend. So thanks, Morty, for um, hipping me to this album. Morty writes of Sight of You. I was wondering if you might um, explain why this song has such a stronghold over both me and my girlfriend. We find ourselves whistling or humming it constantly, even days after we've actually listened to it. Um, I, this song is actually doing something very similar and that explains why it's such an earworm it's an earworm for me too i get it stuck in my head all the time and it's because of the way they treat the melody so here's a clip of the song uh, sight of you by sigrid So that part of the song does a good job of illustrating what um, she's doing with the way that she's written the song to get that melody stuck in your head. And really, it's a trick that songwriters use a lot. I know I've definitely used it um, consciously. So next time you're listening to one of my songs, it, I'm probably going to do this. And now you will know why I'm doing it. So um, I'm letting you guys in on some on some secrets here. But one thing that you can do to reinforce a melody that you're singing is have it played instrumentally right after you sing it. And this song just does that relentlessly throughout the song. You keep hearing the melody of the song, which is this. (laughs) 
you just keep hearing that played on various keyboard and guitar instruments and then she'll sing it and then the instruments will play it and she'll pick it up halfway through the phrase and it's just repeated over and over and over again in a variety of different ways both vocal and non-vocal and as a result by the end of the song you're just sitting there You can't get it out of your head, which is fine because it's a great melody and a really fun song. But yeah, that's definitely part of why an earwormy song works the way that it does. I'm not super familiar with the, you know, the brain chemistry parts of it. And I'm sure there are other reasons the songs get stuck in your head. But for my money, the fact that it just repeats a whole bunch, and especially you hear it in a lot of different instrumental and vocal contexts, eventually the melody will just stick. Max writes, why is the song Wipeout such a big deal to drummers? Well, Max, that's a pretty simple one, really. It's that the song Wipeout, as recorded by the Surfaris, um, it features the drums in a way that a lot of songs don't. And specifically, it features one type of drum, and that is a tom. It features one of the tom-tom drums, or just the toms as they're called, on the drum set. And it's like the tom, just the guy hitting the tom, is the defining sound of the Wipeout group. Drummer Ron Wilson definitely went down in history with that tom fill, and also this song actually features the drums in a solo part. So that's part of it too, is that it's a drum feature. So of course, drummers like any song that features the drummer, but really I think it comes down to that tom part. I mean, it's a really fun song to play and actually anyone can kind of play it. Like if you have some rhythmic sensibility, you can sit down at a drum set with a couple sticks and just look at that rack tom and go, I mean, it's just about where you're placing the accents, right? The fact that it's a tom heavy groove is also, I think, a big deal. I mean, so on the drums, you know, you've got the, the drum set is like more of a collection of instruments. You can think of it as its own instrument, but really it's a collection of other instruments. You know, you've got your kick drum, you've got your snare drum, you've got your ride cymbal, and your crash cymbal, and your hi-hat, and then you have your toms. And the toms are kind of the two drums that really feel like drums. Um, and I say two, but some drum sets have, you know, 75 toms. You look at whatever Neil Peart or Carter Beaufort's drum set, there's like a thousand toms that are tuned to all different pitches. But, you know, most kits, the kit I play, it's got two toms, the rack tom and the floor tom. Um, another song, actually, a lot of famous drum songs tend to feature the toms, and another very famous drum song is uh, the Benny Goodman tune, Sing, Sing, Sing with a Swing, which is mostly famous because drummer Gene Krupa kept that nasty groove on the floor tom. So to get specifically at why Wipeout is a big song for drummers, I think honestly it's that drummers like hitting drums. And that kind of sounds like I'm kidding or making fun of drummers, but I'm kind of not. Like a lot of playing drum set involves hitting cymbals, or using your feet in interesting ways, or managing the snare, which is a drum, but it's its own whole kind of complicated kind of drum. And sometimes when you're playing drums, you just want to hit a drum that makes a drum sound. And songs that really feature the toms, which are the closest things that, you know, those are just drums, man. You hit them and they go boom. So so those songs, I think songs that really feature like heavy tom playing in the fundamental groove wind up being songs that drummers really like to play. That'll do it for this Q&A episode of Strong Songs. 
Or will it? Because funny story, I had so many questions to get through that I actually just sat down in the studio for several days and just went and went and went answering questions. And in the end, I had so much material that it was really enough for two episodes. So this is actually just part one of Strong Songs' May mailbag extravaganza. Part two will be in two weeks with many more answers for many more of your questions. It's also not too late to send me a question for that second question and answer episode. If you want to email me at strongsongspodcast at gmail.com or you can tweet at me at Kirk, K-I-R-K, Hamilton. I really appreciate everyone's questions. They're super fun to answer or at least try to answer. So yeah, feel free to send me more questions and I'll see if I can fit them into the next one. Let's see if we can get to 150 backers and get some new theme music for Strong Songs. And in the meantime, I'll see you all in two weeks with more answers to your questions about many more Strong Songs. Strong Songs.